you know, I just wasn't having a hard time with it. And I said, I think I will walk again. She looked at me and said, so what are you going to do about it? Welcome to Connecting the Resilient. This is your host, Andrew Mangan. Little history, I suffered a spinal cord injury in December 2016. I started Connecting the Resilient to share stories of people who've gone through the experience of spinal cord injuries, but also from doctors, researchers, therapists, and more who share their information and their ideas and what they've learned from being in the spinal cord injury community. For more information, please visit our website at www.connectingtheresilient.com. Really excited to share today's episode with Barry Monroe. Um, Barry has been a huge part of my own rehabilitation, but also many, many other people's. And he's been a, a leading force in the spinal cord injury community for over three decades now. And it was really, really fascinating to hear his thoughts on a lot of the issues and as well as where he thinks the spinal cord injury community will go in the future. Uh, I just want to take a second and apologize. Um, I know it's been quite a while since I posted the last podcast. Um, I've been uh, quite busy. I recently published uh, a book. Um, it's called Plugged In, How Mind Machine Interfaces Will Transform the World. And while not directly um, talking about spinal cord injuries, uh, mind machine interfaces and brain computer interfaces as a whole are super, super promising in their look at um, treating spinal cord injuries in the future. Uh, just recently there is this remarkable study about um, programs down in Louisville using brain-computer interfaces to help uh, complete spinal cord injury patients walk again. Um, and so with that book I have been quite busy, um, so I, I do apologize. Um, then I was recording the audiobook, um, which will be released in December, um, but I'm really excited to share this episode, and then I have another episode coming uh, in a couple weeks too, so hopefully I can get back on track with uh, sending them out to you guys. Thanks so much, and feel free to uh, check out the book or buy it on Amazon. Um, and without further ado, Barry Monroe. got injured in 1987, but more recently is the uh, Chief Development Officer at Canadian Spinal Research Organization. Barry, thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you, Andrew. So could you tell us a little bit about um, kind of your life and how you got involved with um, spinal research? Sure. I We like to refer to this at home as the log cabin story, but... Uh... Uh, yeah, I guess I'll take you back. It seems like a long time ago, but not that long ago in some ways. I had my injury in 1987, and I remember it specifically. It was a diving injury in a lake in uh, northern Ontario, Canada, and um, I was uh, shipped down to a trauma hospital in Toronto. And I remember the doctor telling me that you've broken your neck. You are now quadriplegic and you will never walk again. And I remember those words 
And they were very uh, haunting or daunting, depending on how you looked at it. But I remember lying in bed that night and struggling with the words that you'll never walk again and uh, thinking about that. And I remember a nurse sitting down beside me saying, what's wrong? And I said, well, the doctor just said that I've broken my neck and I'll never walk again. This is a guy being 23 years old. And I said, I just don't seem to accept that. It doesn't make sense. You know, from what we know, can't these things be fixed? And, you know, I'm asking the questions, what's going on in research? And, uh, you know, I just wasn't having a hard time with it. And I said, I think I will walk again. And she looked at me and said, so what are you going to do about it? And that was a challenge uh, for me. And it it was the beginning of my long journey. Um, And a journey that uh, a lot of people of of like-minded around the world have had to take up and and go through at different stages uh, over the last 30 years. And what was interesting about it, Andrew, at the time is uh, when I was in rehab and I was looking to finding answers to this question and wanting to know how I could get involved, I I did find um, the beginnings of of a new organization that was created, which is now known as the Canadian Spinal Research Organization up in Canada. Mm -hmm. And... I asked about um, getting together, uh, you know, what can I do? Well, they, well, there just so happened they were going to have a meeting, and the meeting was going to be right in the rehab center in Toronto, and I thought, oh, this is great. But here's the condition. We have to meet in the basement at night in the cafeteria, and it might be kind of somewhat dark. Like, what kind of clandestine <laughs> organization is this, you know? And, and I asked why, and they said because – the administration doesn't want us meeting in the general public. They feel that um, we're instilling false hope and they don't accept what we're doing. And I thought about that moment going, wow, that's what it was like in the late 80s. And and it was like that around uh, most of the community and around the world. But at the same time, there were organizations, grassroots organizations were starting to grow uh, throughout the Western world um, for particularly the same purpose to raise funds for targeted spinal cord research to help find a cure for paralysis. And it was sort of a, a an interesting point there. And I, and I tell you this story because at the time, I remember dedicating myself to this cause and thinking, okay, now what's the plan? And I remember asking the then president of the organization, I said, I asked, what do we need to do to you know get this thing done and he said well really uh-huh. two things he said two things one is to convince the world that we actually can, can find a cure for paralysis and he says number two is really to raise enough money and to spend it wisely in targeted research to get the job done that way and i thought it was a strange kind of two-step process but i did realize at the time there was a huge attitudinal problem about um, whether or not um, you should even discuss the idea of a cure for paralysis. And and you also had two camps out there, Andrew. You had really a group that were really focused on care um, and a group that's focused on cure. And for some reason, you couldn't be part of both and you couldn't talk about both. It was really two camps. Now, that's all changed. Um, and along the way, uh, in the you know, generation by generation. I remember it was about approximately a decade later when Christopher Reeve had his injury and he became really the focal point and lightning rod 
of, and the champion for cure for paralysis mm-hmm. caused by spinal cord injury. And he was a huge advocate and really amped things up, so to speak, and, and was a huge voice in generating interest and really a focus around a cure. But it was interesting because at the time when he was advocating for that, I realized that now it wasn't a question of if, but a question of when. So really, we turn the, the page in terms of society to this, to, 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 you know, to actually discuss um, the aspects and the possibilities of cure as opposed to whether or not it can happen. And I thought that was mm-hmm. the first point of the plan being executed. But it, and it just sort of drifted over time. And the reason that was, Andrew, was that we've had such an advancement in neuroscience in general. I mean, if you look at all the other maladies like um, Alzheimer's, uh, muscular sclerosis, uh, Parkinson's disease, anything central nervous system related, there's been a lot of work in those areas. And really, frankly, we've all benefited from each other in the advancement of neuroscience. So that's the good news and where it's taken us. But along the way, um, we felt that we really had to um, do more. And now it was a question of that second part of the of uh, the challenge was to raise enough money and and target it properly to fund the right research to get it done. And mm-hmm. that's been the bigger chore. Um, and it was it's it's been a struggle, of course, for any charity out there trying to raise money for research, but more so for our population because, um, frankly, um, the number of people with spinal cord injury is quite small compared to um, some, you know, people suffering from heart and stroke disease or cancer, for example. And also even in the central nervous system area that it's really uh, quite the different, um, quite a a low part of number. So we've had to do a lot of work, you know, and then that's been exciting. Uh, So us at the Canadian Spinal Research Organization adopted uh, an approach many years ago of realizing that we need to partner we need friends, we need allies, and that's where I kind of come to the opinion that in order for us to sort of finish the job and um, really finding a cure for paralysis, we need to both advocate and align. And I, it's kind of my new mantra. <laughs> Maybe it's always been my yeah. mantra, but it's, uh, I've, I've got to label it. But the, <laughs> the advocacy piece is really us as, as spinal cord injured people in general, I, I have no time, frankly, to hear people complaining and whining and being negative about what's happening without suggested solutions. It's okay to yeah. be angry, but what do you want to do about it? And it goes back to those same words, what are you going to do about it? And um, so we as a community have to advocate always for ourselves, but more importantly for the cause and the movement. And then to do that, though, what are the tools? What are the mechanisms? And that's really through alignment. And alignment is really in um, two different ways. One is aligning with like-minded organizations like ourselves. So aligning what I call the community and then aligning what I also call preferred partners or relevant partners in the corporate community. So organizations um, in the community that are all based on spinal cord research and advocating for that, we must align and we must join together. And in the corporate community, we look at 
um, potential uh, corporations that might be relevant to our injury that A, they benefit from what we do, or B, they're in the same space where the causes of our injury are related to what their industry is. For example, as you may know, um, Andrew, almost half of spinal cord injury are caused by motor vehicle crashes. So mm-hmm. why don't we enlist the motor vehicle world being automakers, uh, secondary auto parts people, the insurance industry that insure um, auto, the, uh, the road builders that help ensure that our roads are safe, and on and on and on. And frankly, we've done that uh, and are engaged in, in uh, uh, some campaigns to continue doing that. So we're, and we're finding some success in that area, but we've got a long way to go on that point. Now, in terms of aligning with uh, like-minded organizations, it's exciting and uh, that the environment is such now that the, the, the spirit of cooperation is like it's never been before. Uh, what we're finding now is um, organizations are banding together to look at common causes and policy. And in fact, last year in Miami, we had an inaugural meeting of what is now called the North American Spinal Cord Injury Consortium. And what Mm -hmm. the North American Spinal Cord Injury Consortium is, it is a uh, almost like a trade association, but not. But it's really aligning the various uh, groups and organizations that service and work with people with spinal cord injury And within that, there's a bit of a caveat that there's somewhat of an emphasis on those that are also involved in SEI research. So groups like the Christopher Dana Reese Foundation, uh, Miami Project, United Spinal, PVA, uh, Rick Hansen Institute, SCI Canada, SCI, and all their branches, United Spinal and all their branches, as well as some uh, unique and uh, great smaller boutique-type foundations and researchers themselves as well as individuals all joining together in membership which is free by the way to um, see how we can help shape policy in fact one of our early success stories is um, Andrew that the NIH has Mm -hmm. recently reached out to um, the executive of the North American SCI consortium to join them at a meeting in February to discuss, frankly, the future and the direction of SCI research in the years 2020 and beyond. And uh, that's exciting. But they wow. it's also, yeah, and, and this is exactly what we were designed to do. It's a chance to bring together the community uh, respectfully and with a credibility, engage them and in, employ them to uh, really get their impact and their their input on policy. And uh, that is that is exactly what the organization was set up to do. And we look forward to having that impact and doing the same not only in the U.S., but in Canada and Mexico and beyond. In fact, as we're speaking right now, Andrew, uh, the president of the North American SCI Consortium, Kim Anderson, is leading a symposium down in what they call the ISCOS conference in Sydney, Australia, which is the uh, uh, International Spinal Cord Society 
uh, group. This is a consistent of researchers and organizations from around the world talking like this uh-huh. and working together. So don't be surprised one day, Andy, when when we go beyond North America yeah. and there's a World Congress doing this. This because now we're we are talking to Australia, we're talking to parts of Western Europe, and we're also talking to parts of Asia. I've expressed interest in what we're doing. It's exciting. I mean, the spirit of cooperation has never been so good. And so that yeah. in itself makes me very optimistic. Yeah, that's um that's incredible. It's like amazing story first of all but then yeah just hearing about about the cooperation um and it's interesting that you mentioned western europe because um i'm over i'm in germany for for the year in berlin specifically and i was talking with um i was talking with a physical therapist over here and they told me how um germany has very few um if any really notable um, spine or trauma or, um, TBI centers in like their entire North, uh, Northeast, which I just thought was astonishing. Um, and so hearing that there's, there's programs, um, and consortiums expanding out to those areas is, is really exciting. Um, and so I'm curious, um, I have two questions, but first, uh, what has kind of like I know I um, took part in an event that the CSRO was a part of up in Toronto um, and kind of promoting a fundraiser for spinal cord injury research. And uh, to what extent does the CSRO focus on fundraising and or connecting um, people and connecting with other groups like um, like the consortium you just mentioned? I would say, um, it. I mean... Unfortunately, in our world as a, as a standard not-for-profit that really isn't government-funded, that we spend a lot of time on focusing on research, on fundraising. So there really is two branches to the organization. There is a fund development arm, and then there is the operational or what I like to call uh, kind of a stakeholder advocacy arm. As, as a part, as, And a third part, really, is funding research outright. So um, I would say right now... Uh, that almost 50% of our time is fund development and 50% of our time is, is building those coalitions and stakeholders to advance um, advocacy as well as advancing research and advancing fund development. <laughs> it's kind mm-hmm. of, it's all becomes one because it is a movement and be no different yeah. than, I, I almost want to compare it and I hate to say it sometimes, it kind of bothers people, but what's the what does a political party do? You know, a political party tries to get in power and tries to get elected, tries to win. Yeah. I mean, our win would be good research. And, yeah. but at the same time, they're constantly having to fundraise to be able to do that. And mm-hmm. so the, a lot of energy does go into that. I'd love to say we had a, ma- a goal, a magic wand, and I was fully government funded, and we were just looking at strategic alliances and, and funding different research. But Unfortunately, you have to spend a lot of time just raising that money to get there. Now, yeah, that being absolutely. said, a lot of it is blended. Um, by building stakeholders and, and, and creating more advocates in the community, it also leads to better fund development. Especially, uh, frankly, um, corporations on, from corporate gifts and things like that, they are more likely to invest in organizations that are aligned with other organizations. It's, it's almost yeah. like they're not picking one part of it. 
if they have a chance where their dollar could be spent across the board and touch more faces uh, and more eyeballs, they would gladly get more involved. And I'm, I'm finding that's happening now, which is great. It's like they're respecting that we're building these alliances and these, um, these networks. And by doing mm -hmm. that, uh, they find that their dollar goes a lot further if that's what they want to, to do. Yeah. That's a long answer. Yeah, question. definitely. Sorry. No, yeah. Um, I appreciate it. Um, and I guess that kind of uh, leads me to the next question. Given that you are um, a non-for-profit and not government-funded, there has to be some sort of, or is there some sort of criteria when you're when you're choosing which research to to put those funds towards? Is it uh, like an application basis, or does um, the CSRS specifically um, do you focus on a, a specific type of research, or kind of more like um, shorter term, or versus like um, like long term hail mary research? Yeah, I don't like that expression. <laughs> yeah. I think sometimes, like, everything's a hill. Longer, there, longer no. term. Yeah. I, I would, first of all, we're not a standard, and you're finding a lot of organizations are getting away from that. We're not a standard granting institutions where we have a competition for grants and we accept mm -hmm. a bunch of applications and then we fund a bunch of things. That's not what we do. We're really a targeted organization where we would be selecting one or two targeted research projects and what we are proud of is that we like to think take things from the old expression bench to bedside so we truly represent translational research meaning we don't really spend a lot of time in the basic science field there's funding for that and those mm -hmm. concepts it's really about executing what can we bring that is closer so i would say we're maybe the word short term's not the right word but we're closer to the end type of group, more the translational research where mm -hmm. it's now time for human clinical studies. How can we work on that? Like, for example, one of our emphasis right now is on neuromodulation, which are other words known as epidural stimulation and the yeah. idea of stimulating the spine because we are getting many anecdotal um, reports on the progress and how effective it is and currently, we're just aligning ourselves with a few groups to do what looks like it's going to be an international study, uh, something that will be yeah. cross-border uh, between Canada and the U.S., which happens a lot, and working on uh, partnering with institutions and, and uh, setting up the right um, clinical trials so that we can actually take um, this anecdotal information and turn it into pure uh, executable, reportable science so that uh, potentially these things can be brought to market to help people now. So I would mm -hmm. say, uh, again, we're more in the, let's say we're more in the ninth inning on what we're mm -hmm. doing and not necessarily starting from the opening pitch. That helps the analogy. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I know you also, um, a big part of what you're doing more recently is kind of, um, like patient um, patient support groups. Uh, can you talk about that? Yeah, uh, it's funny. I just got out of a meeting talking about that. We believe that <laughs> um, it's, it's really about education and empowerment. Uh, uh, in helping people that are newly injured, 
there is, and you remember this, I think, there is this quest or thirst, thirst for information. And not just mm -hmm. research, but everything. And we feel we have a role, although we don't, quote, operate a peer support system, we operate more a support system around education and knowledge uh, and allowing people to learn more about the injury and more about what's on the horizon to helping people with the industry injury and as well helping connect with other sources that can provide the support that they need. Um, I think we all have a responsibility, no matter what organization is involved with spinal cord injury, that we have an a responsibility to our fellow brothers and sisters to connect and facilitate the uh, connections as well as the questions that people need to ask and answer so that um, we're all better off and stronger. Nobody should be out there lacking information. Nobody. Yeah. Especially not nowadays. There's just no way. I mean, I look at what you're doing right now is part of that. It's a podcast. It's, you know, you can never get enough learning from other people's experiences I, I learn new stuff every day. I meet people from all over the world. Um, not maybe not maybe it's virtually sometimes, but I, I honestly learn more every day about the injury. And you think after 31 years, I I know a lot, but I sometimes I feel like a rookie, and that's fine. Yeah, because there's so much information yeah. out there. Yeah, for sure. Um, and that's um, yeah, I think that's just such a huge a huge piece that. I found was missing a little bit. And um, I think you and, and this podcast and a lot of other um, groups are, are trying to fill that. It's just that that information kind of beyond just the, the cut and dry um, like physician recommendations or um, therapist response, um, kind of the more, the more personal, um, the more personal experiences I think that's so huge to to the recovery, um, just because it's not it's not you're never the first person to have gone through this, and even though the injuries are very different um, in many cases, there are some similarities. And it, it, you don't personally, I don't think that um, a patient should have to reinvent the wheel every time um, in in most cases, and in in much much of the care it's obviously not like that. And that's why they have specific therapies that are so successful, but I feel like that could be extended um, to more of the, the patient's uh, first couple of months, the person's first couple of months in the injury and having that information from people who've previously been there and kind of their, their successes and failures. Oh, I agree. You know, it's funny. I, I was injured pre-internet and it's hard to believe that existed and you know so you're getting your information by reading things and um in paper and but i'll tell you andrew the best learnings that i gained from this experience was um meeting people that were coming back into the rehab hospital who were alumni or coming back for whatever reason and maybe it was peer support but just meeting a guy who had a C5-6 injury like me who was just even 10 months further ahead than me and looking at yeah. what he or she could do um, with the same injury and realizing I could get there with rehab and then watching them drive a vehicle away or something, that was just huge. And that kind of experience was, I thought, really brought a lot of optimism 
and and help put fuel in the tank, so to speak. And I, you know, I say uh, with all the between social workers and great rehab uh, um, from physio to OTs and all the people that were helping me out during my rehab stint, I couldn't replace them with the peer support that I was getting. That whether it was formal or informal, and you're right. And now with the technology, we can share these this information, you know, a thousand fold, and people can. Mm-hmm find it they want it on the flick of a switch and that that's exciting yeah absolutely well barry thanks so much for sharing um both that and the the work that csro is doing in in advocating and aligning um the different uh foundations and different programs i think it's 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 huge and the more groups that are together obviously the more powerful their voice is um and so i wish you the best of luck on that front. And thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Well, Andrew, thank you. And and exactly keep doing what you're doing because it's a great medium to get the message out. And um, I really applaud uh, the work that you've done. It really helps all of us in, in, in moving this thing a little bit further down the line. But thank you so much. That was Barry Monroe. Really hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I did recording it. Um, be sure to stay tuned over these next couple of weeks. Uh, we have a couple really interesting interviews coming up um, that I'm really excited to share with you guys. And I know you'll enjoy. Um, as always, be sure to like and subscribe. And if you enjoy the podcast, um, leave us a five-star rating. It's really helpful. Um, and be sure to check out our website at www.connectingtheresilient.com. And until next time, this is Connecting the Resilient.